So if you'll turn your Bibles to John chapter 21, we have read through this twice now. We have spent two weeks studying the events around this, or studying the material around this event of the breakfast by the Sea of Galilee. We saw Peter going out fishing. Uh, six other disciples go with him. Uh, we tried to communicate a very different position than what is often taught there, uh, not just to be different, but to be honest with the text here and to, be, uh, to show the evidence that uh, Peter isn't the bad guy here. He hasn't led the disciples to abandon their calling to be fishers of men. They are really just working as they wait. And that was the theme two weeks ago. As we wait for Jesus' coming, we should stay active. Uh, and sometimes that means going out and getting food for the group. Uh, sometimes that means going fishing and, and things like that. And so that's what they are participating in. We don't see him abandoning his calling. In fact, he was commanded to go to Galilee. He was commanded to wait. And he simply says, I'm not going to wait on my hands. I'm going to stay busy. And the other disciples follow along with him, recognizing that this is how you redeem the time because the days are evil. And the evidence that Peter is still very much interested in his mission is his response to when he recognizes or is told that that's Jesus on the shore. Uh, if he was abandoning his mission, you would have seen him cowering and almost not wanting to see Jesus. But you see a very different response. He jumps out of the boat and swims to shore. He wants to be the first to visit Jesus Christ. That is still his heart. That is still on the forefront of his mind. He is anxious to meet Jesus Christ. And when I encounter people who have wanted to fall off of following Jesus, who have wanted to go back to their old life, um, I find them very different uh, in their anticipation of a visit from pastor. Uh, they don't look forward to it, uh, and they shy away from it. Uh, in fact, I've had people that have weren't in church and saw me and have crossed the street or, or gone down a different aisle to avoid having interaction with me. And that is the, the, the actions of those who know that they have taken a wrong turn in their life. Peter wasn't like that because he hadn't taken that wrong turn. He wanted to see Jesus. He was anxious to see him. And the evidence of that is his response to when Jesus is there on the shore. If he had in his mind and heart and in his actions turned away from his mission and gone back to his old life, that would not have been his response. So that was two weeks ago. Last week, of course, we had breakfast by the Sea of Galilee, and we uh, saw that uh, theme that we find throughout Scripture. And so today we want to pick up again on this event, and we're going to really look at the relationship between Jesus and Peter particularly. Um, and then we're going to break off next week to really look at some of the other disciples and their response, specifically John. But uh, let's pick up in chapter 21, uh, verse 15. It says, So when they had eaten breakfast, Jesus said to Peter, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me more than these? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Feed my lambs. He said to him again a second time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Most assuredly, I say to you, when you were younger, you girded yourself and walked where you wished. But when you are old, you'll stretch out your hands and another will gird you and carry you where you do not wish. This he spoke signifying by what death he would glorify God, and when he had spoken this, he said to him, follow me. So we come to a text of scripture that has been, in my opinion, and in the opinion of others, uh, very uncarefully presented. We'll put it like that. I've tried to be generous as much as I can. We're coming into a text that we derive meaning because we're coming into it trying to find a sermon uh, where there maybe isn't one. 
And we're going to be looking at some Greek words, and we're going to be looking at the writing of John. Now that we're at the end of the book, we kind of have a good feel for John's writing throughout uh, this book. Uh, we also have First and Second and Third John as well to go off of. And so we're going to be investigating this, and I'm not, again, trying to just be uh, different. I'm really trying to get us into Scripture so we understand what is here rather than trying to pretend there's things here that aren't here. And to do that, we begin by this engagement. They have finished eating breakfast, which again, the Lord cooked, the Lord prepared, the Lord served it. The disciples simply showed up for the meal. They prepared, the Lord himself prepared it, cooked it, and served it to them. Simon Peter has had a chance to get dry. Okay, remember, he was wet. He jumped into the, and swam to shore. Uh, they've counted the fish. They did that before they ate. And so there's time enough to lay the fish out. Remember, the dried fish was the was more typical. Uh, rather than what we think of as fresh fish and putting it on ice, that wasn't something they did. Um, and so we find this uh, activity is well after they had eaten, after they'd done all of that, things have settled down. Everyone's got a full stomach. Now we're going to have some fellowship. We're going to have some interchange and discussion. And... Jesus turns his attention very quickly to, to Peter. And he does this, remember, around a fire of coals. And the last time we saw them in the Gospel of John was when Peter denied Jesus Christ three times. It should not surprise us that we're going to find Jesus asking Peter three times, Do you love me? But it is annoying to Peter that he gets asked the same question three times. Most commentators today will tell you, or preachers will say, well, Jesus didn't really ask him the same question three times. He only asked him the same question twice, and then the third time asked him a different question. We're going to challenge that a little bit this morning. Not too much, but a little bit. Uh, but we come to this uh, annoying thing. I have to be asked this three times. Peter seems to have forgotten over the last few days, perhaps weeks, that uh, he had denied Jesus Christ around a fire of coals three times. Jesus gives him an opportunity to express his real heart afresh. This side of the resurrection. This side of the crucifixion. This side of the darkness of that night. Now we're in the light of the day. Remember, this is dawn. We've had breakfast and so now we're probably mid, closer to mid-morning, or at least a little bit later in the morning. Um, uh, mid-morning would be 6 a.m., right, for us. You're not here thinking, that's mid-morning? No, mid-morning is like 10. That's because you think the morning starts <laughs> at, at 6 or something. Uh, but we're at about, probably, you know, later on in the morning, the sun is up, we're enjoying ourselves, and... Out of the darkness of the night where, Jesus, where Peter's mouth said, I do not know him, and cursed him, uh, we now have Peter having an opportunity to say, well, what do you believe in the light? What is in your heart today? And that's really the challenge that we have, is that we are dealing with an opportunity for Peter to uh, make things right, to communicate to the Lord what's really in his heart, because he had failed miserably. Now, he has already had multiple contact with Jesus Christ. He has had opportunities to communicate that. But Jesus here uh, is not challenging Peter on why are you fishing. That is not here in the text. That is not what this is really about, as we have seen. Jesus has blessed their fishing expedition uh, by bringing in uh, an exact number of fish. And, uh, and he has fed them, and he is, this is not what's pressing us. Peter isn't annoyed because... Uh, he feels that Jesus is rebuking him for fishing. That is not going on in this text. And those that want to put that into the meaning into here, I think do a disservice to it. He is giving Peter an opportunity to, to in this semi-public environment, to communicate his commitment to Jesus Christ. And he does this in a very particular way. Uh, not with the just the phrase, do you love me, the question, but also with the command to feed or tend my lambs or sheep. And we're going to be looking at that facet as well. But let's start with the question first, since it came first. Do you love me? 
Now, as many of you already know, and if you do not, we're going to talk about the Greek words here. And the Greek word that Jesus Christ used on the first two occasions is different than the response that Peter gives. And then they are, and then Jesus moves to Peter's word in the last question. Some people would say, well, that's what annoyed Peter. That's not what the text says. The text says he was just annoyed that he got asked the same question three times. Not that Jesus changed the word. Because Jesus moved from his word to Peter's word. And we're going to talk about that movement for a little bit. But let me first of all say we're not going to build an entire sermon upon those two Greek words. Why? Number one is because there's not agreement in theological circles among which one is greater and lesser. And we'll talk about that in a little bit. Number two, they probably weren't speaking Greek to each other at all. The vernacular around Galilee was Aramaic. John was written in Greek, but it is unlikely that Jesus and his disciples spoke Greek to one another, especially in Galilee. Maybe in Jerusalem, but not here between him and this inner circle of seven of the eleven disciples. And so the likelihood is that they're not using these two Greek words at all. They're using Aramaic words. And so um, that really isn't, shouldn't be the focus of this passage is these two words. And thirdly is the nature in which John writes. And so let's look at the nature in which John writes first. Okay, and then we'll get into the meaning of these two words. Now the two words that Jesus, the word that Jesus used at the beginning the two is agapao, which is from agape. You know of agape is probably what you've heard. And agapas and so the endings, of course, change between how they're used. So do you love me? Agapes, do you love me? Is the two first questions he asks, and then he changes to the other Greek word, which is phileo, or phileos, uh, phileo. And so um, we have these two words, and there's been a lot built on these two words, and we're going to get to that. But I want you to understand John's writing. We have gone through, and I haven't referenced a lot of the Greek uh, as we have gone through this book, and uh, somewhat purposefully, uh, because John's writing is very simple in, in its Greek usage, but um, that's why we study John's writings first when we're learning Greek in Bible college and seminary. We always start with John's writing, because it's, it's the easiest Greek to translate. But one thing John does do a lot is he loves to use synonyms. He loves them. This is how he creates variety in his texts. And he uses them as true synonyms. That is, they are completely interchangeable in his eyes. And so this isn't just regarding love, which we're going to study today. There's really a lot of verbs. He just intermixes different words for seeing, for, for uh, uh, serving, for uh, uh, following. He just uses different Greek words and he uses them interchangeably. And that is the how he produces the, the variety in his writing. And to some degree, I'm kind of a real proponent of that uh, because I don't know if you notice, but in a lot of my preaching, I simply say the same thing over with another word. I use synonyms a lot. I didn't realize how much I use synonyms until I went to Peru. And I had, that was the first time I ever had to preach with a translator. So Pastor Lossing was translating for me. I was speaking English, he would speak in Spanish. And I would say things, and I would hear him translate it and say the same thing over again. Because he said, well, you just said the same thing, you used a synonym. Instead of using a synonym in Spanish, he just gave me the same Spanish word. And then when I hear the same Spanish word over and over again, I realized I was saying the same thing with just synonyms, and he was just, all those things mean this word in Spanish. He just gave three English words that mean one word in Spanish. So he kept using the same one word. So the poor Spanish people are probably looking at Spanish-speaking people are like, he's just saying the same thing over and over again. Uh, and so I use synonyms a lot uh, to not bring out the nuanced difference between these three words, 
but to help clarify, there might be one word you know better than the others. Uh, there might be nuances between them, but usually I insert them to give a variety and to keep you engaged in our, in our time together in God's Word. John does that a lot, so he and I are simpatico. See, I had to use a Spanish word there in this regard of using synonyms in this fashion. So, I'm not going to build a whole sermon on the difference between agape love and phileo love. Because John uses them as synonyms. Let me show you this. John, go to, um, so what I did was, John uses phileo 13 times in his book. He uses agape around 30 times, and so 20 sometimes, uh, close to 30 times. And so, we, we're just going to go through a few of these. I want you to see how he interchanges them freely. Let's go to uh, John chapter 3. We're going to do a little survey today. So I'm going to take you on a little walk, and, and there's a reason I'm doing this. So just, we're all, these are all in John, of course. John 3, verse 35. Okay, hang on. John 3, 35. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hands. Do you see that the Father loves the Son? Let's go to John 5.20. John 5.20 says, For the Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he himself does. He'll show him greater works than these that you may marvel. <clears throat> so, is this agape or phileo? How does the Father love the Son? Does he love him agape love or phileo love? Both. The first passage is agape love in chapter 3 and in chapter 5 the father loves the son is phileo love to John they're interchangeable this is how the father loves the son agape and phileo not agape or phileo as though one is higher and one is lower uh, let's go to chapter 14 and you can do this very easily just get your little uh, well you'd have to have certain resources but you can do it online probably really easy um, I didn't do it online. I had it the old-fashioned way with my little concordance and strongs. And the 14, verse 21. He who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father. And I'm going to focus it on the loved by my Father. And I will love him and manifest myself to him. Interesting conglomeration of love, and you don't know which ones are flat on agape, do you? Let's go to chapter 16, a few pages over, verse 27. For the Father himself loves you because you have loved him and have believed that I came forth from God. So how does the Father love you? With agape love or phileo love? You know the answer. Both. One of these verses is agape, and the other verse is phileo. God loves you both ways. I want you to see that John is simply intermixing them. The first one that I gave you, chapter 14, 21, is, is the father loved or agaped his followers. And the second one, 16, 27, is the father phileos his followers. Both. Let's go to chapter 13, verse 1. How does Jesus love you? Chapter 13, verse 1. It says, Now before the feast of Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he should depart from this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Now let's go to chapter 11. Go backwards. Chapter 11, verse 3. Therefore the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. Referring to who? Lazarus. Let's go down to uh, the end of the story of Lazarus, verse 36. Uh, and that is, the Jews said, see how he loved him. So, how does Jesus love his followers? Jesus loves me. Is it agape or phileo? Both. Correct. You're getting it. This is great. In chapter 13 is agape, and chapter 11 is phileo. Notice, Lazarus, he phileoed. We're going to talk about why 
that is used there, uh, and I think that's probably one of the best examples, are you saying that Jesus didn't have a, a greater love for Lazarus? He had a lesser love for Lazarus than other people, and that's why he cried and wept at his, at his grave and raised him from the dead? I don't think so. Let's do one other one. This one I, I think is really kind of fun. Uh, we're at 13. Uh, let's go to 13, verse 23. This is... Now there was leaning on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. This is the way John refers to himself in the book. I am the disciple whom Jesus loved. The disciple whom Jesus loves. Now let's go to chapter 20, verse 2. This is after the resurrection. Then she ran and came to Simon Peter and the other disciple whom Jesus loved. Is this agape or phileo? Both. Do you see how to John's he does not see a significant difference significant enough to make a whole sermon out of the difference between agape and phileo. Even in his nomenclature for himself, I am the disciple whom Jesus phileoed. I am the disciple whom Jesus loved. They are interchangeable. He uses it in reference to him. He uses it in reference to the father loving the son. He uses them both in reference to the, the father loving the, his uh, the followers, the disciples of Jesus Christ, it loses it reference to Jesus' love for us. That they are both valuable. That they are both interchangeable in many senses. And we find them, if we had a good study of the Greek throughout, if we had been reading Greek this whole time, we would have picked that up. Because it doesn't show in English. It just doesn't show. We just use love, 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 love. We think it's all the same. And it really kind of is to John. This is simply his way of interchanging these words to give you some variety. Um, but there is a, a distinction. I don't get confused saying agape and phileo are the same. They aren't quite. Uh, but they aren't quite as radically different to warrant that somehow this is an interchange between Jesus and Peter that's trying to force an issue by the use of a Greek word. That is not what's going on here. That's not what's frustrating Peter. That is not what annoys him. That is not Jesus' intent. And I don't think it's John's intent here at all to say there was something going on if you knew the Greek. Well, I know the Greek. And as you go through John, you find, and I've just shown you, how to John, they don't mean that much different. Now, commentators will talk about it. Here's what modern commentators will say. That agape is the deeper love of the will of being really committed to somebody. And so Jesus is asking Peter if he's really committed to him. It is... A, a willful act. It is an intelligent one. It is uh, showing devotion. Those are the words other commentators have used about agape. And, and they are pretty much correct in most of that. But that necessarily mean it's the higher form of love. In fact, I would contend with you, the people that force this are people who have to have agape be a higher form of love because of its... Notice what I said, intelligent and willful love. And this is a Calvinistic view of love, that it's a love of choice. So they prefer that. And so they set it up as a higher form of love. Let me share with you some words that are associated with phileo. Tender love. Steadfast love. Personal love. Familial love. Love within a family. It's much more tender. And it involves uh, some of your feelings as well as your commitment. But there is still a steadfastness there. And so when the Bible calls let brotherly love continue, that is our calling to one another. That is not a lower form of love than this intelligent, willful, devoted love. In fact, 
the word is often used in, in Greek, in high Greek, to refer, agape is often used to refer to the love a slave would have for its master, a worker would have for someone superior to him. That that is that I have to, I have to, I choose to be devoted to you. And so when a slave gets its, his ears pierced to show that he has become a bond servant, he is showing he agapes his master. And that's why I don't have my ears pierced, because I'm no one's slave. Um, I'm Jesus' slave, so maybe I should, but he didn't ask me to do that. So. Um, so that's why they would get their ears pierced, and that would show that they're a bond servant instead of a slave by force. They are a slave by choice, and that is agape. It is not used, you don't use agape in a familial setting. You always use familia, uh, phileo as a familial love. And so these are the words that are associated with phileo compared to agape. And so it is, and, and I, I want to share with you, modern commentators will focus that agape is the deeper, greater love, and phileo is a lesser love. I want to take you back 170 years to 1850s when they taught the exact opposite in our churches. The exact opposite. They taught that Jesus started off with agape love as a lesser form of love, and Peter said, no, I tenderly love you with all my heart. Phileo. And Jesus keeps saying, are you devoted to me? And, and, and Peter's response is, no, I love you like a brother, like my family. You, you are all to me. And then Jesus responds by saying, do you follow me? And, and Peter, you would say, well, if, 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 if he's moved to that word, why isn't Peter excited? He won the argument. No. <laughs> because neither of those positions, all right, the modern position that agape is greater than phileo, or the position of 170 years ago, 1850, where it was the other way around, and phileo was greater than agape, neither one of them, right? Because this isn't about an argument about what kind of love. That's not what the purpose of the text is. The purpose here that we want to really get into is, are you committed in, uh, in all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength to me? Are you ready to make this declaration? Three times you declared that you hated me, that you didn't know me, that you cursed me with that mouth. And James tells us that how can blessings and curses come out of the same mouth? This shouldn't be. And Jesus says, now I'm giving you an opportunity to, to communicate differently. Here's an opportunity for you to set the record straight. Is this really the last things you want recorded in the Gospels that you deny Jesus Christ? Oh, no. These words of Jesus to Peter are powerfully important to Peter to establish him in front of his peers. Don't think they did this in private. This confrontation, and it was a confrontation. I don't deny that. There is a confrontational aspect to this. And that is, do you love me? That's a forthright question. Whether it's agape or phileo, do you love me? This is the question Jesus wants to know from Peter. Because over there you cursed me. Over there you denied me. Three times. Now, in front of your peers, I want you to respond. Do you love me? And this is the power of this question. And so I'm not going to uh, delve into and think that somehow there's an argument between I think what they said in 1850, what they're doing in modern commentators, I think are, are really outside of the purview of what we have here in our text. What we have here is an opportunity of Jesus saying, would you like to communicate something different than you did the night of my trial? What's really going on in your heart? And the fact is, all of us have that weight on us of when we knew that we did or said things that displeased our Lord. We have all failed him. Some of us more than others, but we've all failed him. 
We've all been cowards when we should have been courageous. We have all gone along with the crowd when we should have stood our ground in holiness. We've all tried to fit in when we should have been sticking out. We've all done that. And let there be no mistake, that's what Peter was doing. Out of fear of a little girl calling him a disciple of Jesus Christ, he cursed Jesus Christ's name. We've all been there. And Jesus Christ comes to you and says, do you love me? And on Sunday morning, we love him. Yeah, I love you, I love you, I love you. And he says, well, um, saying it isn't enough. And that's the force of what we have here. I've given you three chances to say you love me. And you have responded by saying, you love me. And, and look at Peter's statement. It says, yes, you know that I love you. Technically, he didn't really say he loved him. It says, you know that I love you, that I love you. You know that I love you, verse 16. You know all things. You know that I love you. Technically, he didn't say I love you. <laughs> he simply says, you know that I love you. And in fact, I have always have, even when I let you down that night. I failed you, but I didn't stop loving you. We fail our Lord frequently. But does that correspond with hating him? And that's been a big deal in John. That's one of our mega themes of the book, isn't it? That these people say, We're, we believe in Jesus Christ at the beginning of the chapter. Remember that chapter? By the end of the chapter, they hated him and wanted to kill him. And so my question isn't uh, to, to most people who are trying to be faithful in their walk with God, and they're, they're trying to do what's right, and they're in the war. They're in the war. They're in the battle. They're fighting the good fight. And, but not always very successfully. <laughs> okay? Uh, but they want to. They love the Lord, they want to do it, and they just keep falling on their face and falling on their face, and we try to pick them. That's why the question is asked, how many times do I have to forgive them? Uh, seven? Is that enough? Well, I've failed Jesus Christ a lot more than seven times in my life, and I'm glad he says just make it 70 times seven, and I think that gets beyond counting. But make sure you get up and make it right. Peter, you've made it right with your mouth. You've, you've, you've shown by swimming here, that you love me, that you want to see me. You're not cowering in the back of the boat. I hope he doesn't see me. What did he remember? Does he know that I rejected him three times? No. Does he know that I've left off a mission and started going back to my fishing business? <laughs> There's nowhere in the text, okay? No. He just couldn't wait to get to Jesus Christ because he loves him. He loves him as a devoted follower to master. That's agape. But he loves him as a tenderly, as a brother. And brotherly love, that tender, familial, steadfast love is what Peter wanted to confess. But to John, I think they were essentially the same. And so we communicate with our mouth we love the Lord. We'll sing his praises when we're together in church. We'll make the confession with force to, do you love God? And we'll say yes. Um, but then we have to put it into practice. And uh, words are cheap, aren't they? Peter, you can say, you know that I love you uh, three times. Uh, but it's, that's only half of the conversation on Jesus' side. And we get all caught up in these Greek words and we forget the real force of the conversation is the command. Feed my sheep. Feed my lambs. Tend my sheep. Remember that Jesus Christ says, I am the good shepherd. He is the over-shepherd, and that's why uh, the term that uh, most in our circles want to use for the office I hold is pastor. A lot of you don't necessarily know what the word pastor means. It simply means under-shepherd, shepherd boy is what I like to talk. And so a pastoral scene is a scene with a shepherd and sheep out on a field. And 
He is the chief shepherd. That is, he is the one who, who, to, who owns the sheep. They are his sheep. You cannot miss that in the text. Don't feed your sheep. Feed my sheep, Jesus says. So the sheep aren't followers of the under-shepherd. They aren't owned by the pastor. They are owned by the chief shepherd, the good shepherd, Jesus Christ. They are his sheep. And Jesus Christ over and over and over again tells Peter, you want, say you love me. Now, do what I need you to do to show your love. You say you love me, show you love me. What a difference. This is the calling. Your mouth failed you. Some time ago, that night, you denied me three times. Now, your mouth is declaring something, that you love me. And in fact, the question changes a little bit from the first one. The first one, please notice this one little difference. I want to throw this out at you. Uh, the first question says, Simon, do you love me more than these? Do you say that more than these? It's not repeated in the other questions. Because the first question is, really, do you love me more than these? And there's a lot of talk about what's the these? These what? Uh, and some commentators will come to and say, do you love me more than these other disciples? Do you love me more than these other men? And that could, it could mean that. It really could. Others will say, well, do you love me more than these fish that you caught? Or fishing. And it could mean that too. Um, because both plurals are listed here uh, in, the, in the text. And this particular plural uh, is indistinguishable between whether it's fishes or the other men. Do you love me more than these? Do you love me? And, and we can go either way. And I prefer to just say, well, let's just go both. Do you love me more than anything? More than these other men? Do you love me more than these men love me? Do you love me more than these fish? Do you love me more than you know, filling your belly with a wonderful breakfast that I prepared and served you? Do you love me more than these? We're not sure exactly what the these were because we, we weren't there to see what Jesus was pointing at. Is he pointing at the boat and the fishes on the shore? Is he pointing at the other men around the fire? We don't know. But the real question is, do you love him more than? This is the question. And this is what we are called to show in our lives. Do I love Jesus more than these? And you can fill in the blank. This is a wonderful verse. Fill in the blank for you. Do you love Jesus more than these? If I point to your children in the nursery. Do you love Jesus more than these? If I point to your house and cars and your stuff? Do you love me more than these? Point to whatever else is an important thing to you, your, your coinage, that we have a strange shortage of in our country right now. Kind of suspicious. Do you love me more than these? Fill in the blank. This is wonderful that we don't know what the these are. We don't even know what Jesus was holding. He might have been holding something in his hand. You love me more than these. We don't know. And that's okay. Because we can all come to this conversation and have Jesus ask us the same question. Do I love him more than these in my life? Any other familial relationship because Jesus Christ, remember, in this book says, if you don't love me more than you love your family, then you're not worthy of me. So this is a mega theme of John as well. How deep is our love for Jesus Christ? Well, if we love him more than anything else, then we're going to serve him. And for Peter, which is, might be distinct from you, uh, and what God calls you in your life, he comes to Peter and says, you, wanna, you declare your love, now we want to evidence your love. And we all know the difference between declaring love and evidencing love. Peter has declared his love for Jesus Christ, but Jesus himself commands him, evidence your love. 
feed my lambs, tend my sheep, feed my sheep. That is that you are going to leave these other things so that there is no higher priority in your life than the flock of God. This is the calling of God on Peter. That you're going to love the feeding of the lambs higher. You're going to be a, you're, that's going to be a higher priority in your life than all these other things because this is the way I have commanded you to evidence your love for me. And it's for each of us to investigate and discover how it is that I can evidence my love for God greater than blank. Greater than my love for blank, how can I evidence love? Well, that depends upon what's in that blank in your life. If money is the thing you love in your life, then the way to evidence that is to what? What did Jesus say to the guy who loved his money? Give it away! <laughs> Go give it away and come follow me. Don't live for the paycheck. If the paycheck is too important to you and is greater, you love it more than you love the Lord. I mean, that's... That, and, and so whatever is, fills in the blank, if, if, your relationship, if your children are in that blank, then you're going to have to evidence something that my love for God is greater than my love for my children, greater than my love for my parents, for whoever, that I'm going to serve him first. When I was a young pastor, actually an intern, uh, I was given the responsibility of the junior high group at Abbey Road Baptist Church in Elyria, Ohio. And you're sharing the gospel, you're sharing God's word. I'm going out as a pastor, as a missionary at that point, and I'm, I'm putting this, this, this vision before these children, uh, young, uh, young adults, really, very young adults, 12, 13-year-olds, about a passion for serving God all their days, and one of the gals gets excited about it, starts talking about wanting to go to Bible college, and I get confronted by parents that says, no way. Not parents outside the church, parents whose, one of them's a deacon in the church. Why? We're not giving up our child. Well, now we know what the these is in their life. Do you love me more than these? How are you evidencing your love for God over all these other priorities of life? And again, in our modern time, I've often been um, rebuked because you don't put your family high enough in your priorities of life. And when they see me going out to do ministry or letting ministry interrupt times there are pastors that won't do any ministry on their family day. I don't have a family day um, because I love my Lord more than my family. There's no day of the week that they take priority over my Lord. If I'm called to ministry, I put it down and go do the ministry. And that goes for pretty much everything else. What Peter is being confronted with was, is not only do you want to declare your love for God, it's time to evidence it. Prove it. Show it. See, I used three synonyms. Can't stop. Where's your love? Lying. Peter, you're going to have to feed my sheep. And I could spend a lot of time on that whole concept of what it means to feed the, the sheep of the Lord. That it's not my sheep and therefore there's an accountability because you know that the owner, the good shepherd, is going to hold you accountable for every word that you teach, every message, every act, every manner of life that communicates to his sheep. That they are his sheep, I have responsibility that he has given me, that I have to answer to him, not really to the sheep, uh, but I have to answer to him for the condition of the sheep he's put under my care. But you are the Lord's sheep. We are His. And when we view one another as agents of our Lord, as the possession of our Lord, 
as the cherished ones of our Lord, of the loved ones, then we, if we love the Lord, we'll care for them. Not just feed them, but tend to them as well, to care for them. We'll care. And in a pastoral role that you can go to First and Second Peter and see Peter's writings and he communicates to the men. This is, he uses the word pastor in his text. Paul prefers the term bishop, um, but Peter prefers the term pastor going back to this passage. Feed my sheep. Be a shepherd boy. You don't own the sheep. You just got to take care of them every day and you're going to be bringing them in before the chief shepherd, the owner of the sheep, and giving accountability for the for the, the care that they've received. And sheep that have been neglected and ignored and underfed are, are evidenced. They can be seen. It is very clear. Um, if you've ever seen butchers come out to a flock, they, and I've seen that growing up in Minnesota, they just put feed in a trough, and all those sheep line up, and that guy just walks right down and just does this right along their spine. And you can tell exactly which sheep are well taken care of. And by the way, the fat sheep, he puts a big X on, and that one's going to get eaten. Um, that's not what the Lord's raising you for. But that's all I had to take, just one run right down, one thumb, finger, right down, one, either side of the spine, and now we know. It's very evident And so there's a responsibility. But there's one last part of this conversation that I don't see a lot of people giving a lot of attention to. Do you love me? Yes, Lord, I love you. You know that I love you. Feed and tend my sheep. Evidence your love for me. Put action behind those words. The action is what I'll watch. Then I'll know you love me. But recognize that as you're doing that action, this is key, if you're doing that action out of love, you're willing to accept the fact, I will do that even though it costs me my life. You see, at the end of this conversation, Jesus, having settled the fact that Peter, in fact, loves him <laughs> by his mouth, still hasn't had a chance to feed his sheep, Jesus gives Peter a little glimpse into the future. You say you love me, I've commanded you to feed my sheep, and so here's what it's going to cost you. You're going to lose your liberty and your life. You're going to be led around by the hands. You'll stretch out your hands, another will gird you and carry you where you do not wish. You see, we don't feed the sheep for pay. We don't feed the sheep because it's some benefit to us. The real measure here is are you willing to feed the sheep when it costs you your life because then I know you did it because you love me. You see, if I only feed the sheep because I get another benefit from it, then it taints that and now it's no longer evidence of loving God. It's evidence that I like what I get paid for taking care of the sheep. And there are too many pastors out there, and this is why God's word is so clear in teaching that one of the evidences of false teachers, he does it for the money. If they do it for the money, run! Because he's not a good shepherd. He's not a, a true shepherd boy. He's not doing it because he loves God. He's doing it because he loves the pay. He loves this world. If you are tending, if you're doing this for God, you'll do it not only without pay, you'll do it even if it costs you everything to do it. And we all understand this, really. If we look at relationships, well, we used to. I don't know if we do anymore. I don't know about the last 20, 30 years if this has been lost on society. We understood that if a man loved his wife, He'd give up everything if necessary. Go out of his way to care for her, deal with her with nothing expected in return. It would never come up in an argument. But I do this for you. Because as soon as that happens, you didn't do it out of love. 
You did it out of something you were getting in reciprocation from her. You see, we demonstrate that we love Jesus more than these, whatever that is in your life, by, sur- by doing what he has called us to do, even if it costs us everything to do it. And in fact, maybe it is the costliness of doing it that we should measure the evidence by. So my mouth says I love Jesus. Jesus says, okay, evidence that, feed my sheep. Um, And here, I'm even going to tell you ahead of time, this is what it's going to cost you to do that. Are you still going to do it? Are you still going to do it, even if it costs you everything? Peter does a spectacular job of living up to his profession. He professed, I love you. You know that I love you. You know all things. You know I love you. And Peter backs it up. Is he going to fail again? Oh, yeah. (laughs) Are you going to fail again? Yeah. Am I? Yeah. You know, Peter's going to be rebuked at another meal, by the way. Peter's going to stop eating. He fasts just so he doesn't get rebuked every time he eats with people. But <laughs> he got rebuked at the meal when he, Jesus washed their feet. Remember that? I mean, he's the poor guy. Um, gets rebuked at the meal with Paul there um, in Antioch. And so uh, he's going he's to fail. But he does a spectacular job of backing up on a, on a, on a consistent basis of backing up his declaration, Lord, you know that I love you. I will feed your sheep. And I will do it, though it costs me everything. This is what we need to measure in our lives. This is the invitation of this passage. Not what kind of love you have for it, but do you love him enough to prove it in your actions, no matter the cost? and even knowing what the cost will be. But we knew the, the penalty. But we were going to do it anyway. Why? Because we're going to obey God's command. Why? Because we love him more than that. They want to fine us? Well, we love God more than our money. They want to imprison us. We love God more than our freedom. Do you love God? Evidence it by what you do. Do you love him more than these? Prove it. And recognize that while you're proving it, you're not going to get a pat on the back doing it. You might even have to pay everything to keep doing it. This is the power of this conversation with Peter. Do you love him enough to serve him no matter the cost? Let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us. We thank you for an opportunities that you give us to show our love for you. And Lord, we have failed to do that in our lives. All of us have. And we pray for your forgiveness. We know that you offer it. But you also offer us an opportunity.